Welcome to the Music of America podcast, where every week we visit a different state in America and meet a different guest in the music industry. Every day, Monday through Friday, we begin in Alabama and we end in Wyoming. I'm your host, Tom Pollard. Let's talk music here on the Music of America. Music of America podcast continues today. We're going to do something different. We're not going to talk music necessarily with musicians, but we're going to talk a lot of music. Ken Voss, the Rock and Roll Music Archives, is our guest. First, we want to talk about jingle lingo, the jingle that hits like a single. That's the slogan that they use at Jingle Lingo. It's an advertising vehicle designed to create a unique and personal jingle to promote and position your business and make it stand out above the crowd. Think of all the music jingles you've heard through the years. Who came up with this? Who wrote that jingle? Jingle Lingo can and will put your business into higher vision and focus on all your advertising needs. Jingle Lingo, custom made and custom designed with you and for you in mind. Through the talents of accomplished singer and songwriter, Courtney Davis Jackson, check them out today and get to work on your personalized musical jingle from Jingle Lingo. JingleLingo.com, the jingle that hits like a single. I love that phrase, Ken, because you would understand it and appreciate it because you know what singles are. You know what albums are. You probably even know what an A-track is. <laughs> <laughs> and and jingles, you know, when we're talking about Illinois, I mean, jingle, the, Illinois was the capital for jingle production, you know, back in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Really? You know, it, was, it, it, was, it was the commercial home for, you know, the, the jingle writers, the jingle musicians, it's a whole segment of the music market that people don't know about. Uh, you know, these people that are doing sessions for jingles were just, you know, they'd, they'd come in, they'd do one session in the, in the morning, they'd do another session in the afternoon, and then they'd go play a gig at night. <laughs> wow. Your position or what you do, you have an archive, but you've written articles, you've written books, you've got a blog, you've got a website. So let's talk about you and what you do and uh, how you got into this whole thing. Well, currently I'm a historian for the Illinois Music Archives. And what we do is we try to just uh, do histories of all the uh, music artists and many things that are related to just the music industry in Illinois. Uh, whether it's uh, recording studios, record labels, the engineers, uh, the producers, the managers, the agents. There's so much involved with the music industry besides just the musicians that are getting on stage. And so we try to document all those people um, that are involved in, in the industry in some way, shape or form. I mean, I, I started, I go back to the mid 70s when I started a publication in the Chicago area called the Illinois Entertainer. Uh, it's now next year, the publication will be in its 50th anniversary. And it's still the now being said to be the oldest music publication, regional music publication still in print in the United States. No kidding. Wow. Did you uh, do much crossing over with other markets? Have you met people in St. Louis, Detroit, New York? Or did you pretty much do your thing in Chicago? Well, again, there was a lot of crossover of musicians coming into Chicago, but one of the focuses of the publication was local music. Mm -hmm. uh, we basically covered about a 50-mile radius of Chicago, 
and we had one policy with the publication that if you weren't from Chicago or the Midwest, you couldn't be on the cover of the publication. Okay. One time, one time, Bruce Springsteen's management called me up, and uh, you know, to do a story, and they said, "No cover, no story." And we said, well, you have no Midwest ties, so we can't put you on the cover. So uh, they turned us down for an interview with Springsteen. <laughs> Interesting. Or you turned them down. I mean, policy's policy, right? We had so many artists coming out of the Chicago area yeah. at that point in time. The Cheap Tricks, the Off-Broadways, the Shoes, uh, Elvis Brothers. Uh, you, you had Muddy Waters. You had Willie Dixon. Um, so we covered all music genres across mm -hmm. the board. And it was easy to find an artist to put on the cover of our magazine. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite memories of Chicago and, and music was we went to Buddy Guy's place. And we sat down, and there was Buddy Guy sitting in. And I, I was thinking that he has his own booth or table. He was just sitting there. Somebody, at least somebody pointed out and said, that's Buddy Guy sitting over there. And there he was just chilling, just enjoying the evening, having a cocktail, eating a burger, whatever it was. You know, I just remember him sitting there and somebody saying, that's Buddy Guy sitting over there. And no fans, nobody around him, just a man just enjoying music in his own place. I just thought that was one of the coolest scenes of, of that you could experience, you know. Yeah, he he did that a lot. You know, he just sat in the club, sat in the back corner of the bar and, and watched and, and watched the other musicians. I remember one time being there where uh, Slash from Guns N' Roses was in there uh -huh. and he was up on stage and he was playing some blues with uh, actually he was playing with Buddy, Buddy Miles. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, you see you see Buddy Guy kind of get up and starts walking toward the stage and kind of pushes Slash aside and said, let me show you how to play the blues. <laughs> <laughs> That's classic, man. Love yeah. that. Uh, so, you... so, so then, um, you know, with the Illinois Entertainer, you know, again, it's still in print. I've been away from it for about 20 years. I, I went into other segments of the music business um, and had moved out of the Illinois area. And when I came back, there were a lot of musicians who said, do you have our old ads? Do you have our old articles from the magazine? And I said, you know, I probably do, but you know, they're in boxes and, you know, right. in the garage and et cetera, et cetera. So that's when I kind of got the interest to starting up the Illinois music archives. And the intent was to try to build an encyclopedia of music, you know, of music of Illinois. Well, that encyclopedia will never come to fruition because <laughs> there's just too many musicians. There's too many record labels. Um, our database now has nearly a thousand record labels that have been based in Chicago alone. Wow. Um, now, a lot of those may be DIY labels that had, you know, one, one record by, you know, their own artist. But it's a label, and it existed, and sure. it's an artist that put music out. So, you know, we cover them. You know, uh, this week we also have a Facebook page, uh, the Illinois Music Archives Facebook page, and we try to post every day a story about some Illinois artist or connection. You know, uh, for example, we had a we had a story on on uh, Steve Goodman, and of course we just lost. Uh, um, uh, you know, we just, uh, Steve, 
We just lost Jimmy Buffett and Steve Goodman and Jimmy Buffett were very close friends and, and, you know, did a lot of music together. And yet today our post is on a band called the Five Wagers who nobody has heard of because they're an old doo-wop band from uh, uh, Cooley High School in Chicago that put out one or two records back in the 50s that, you know, nobody remembers. Now, I uh, I played in a band in St. Louis, and our bass player is from Chicago. And we did a version of, I, I'm going to mess this up, I'm sure. But we did a version of, we've got to get out of this place. And he was adamant that it came from some other band, because a band in Chicago made it more prevalent than the animals did. And I, I, I couldn't fathom that, but he insisted that because he grew up in Chicago, grew up listening to music up there. And he said, that's who, that's the radio station's version. That's what they would play. They didn't play like the animals. They played somebody else's, th- this local band. And I thought that's just really amazing to take, to, to take a local band and dethrone a national or in this case, international act. Did that happen a lot in the music, the Chicago music scene? Well, it did happen to some extent because you had uh, WLS, which was the major rock radio station in town, that was 50,000 watts clear channel. So at night, you could hear WLS in New Orleans, you could hear them in California, you could hear them on the East Coast. It was a clear channel radio station. So they broke a lot of Chicago artists that... um, because, again, you could hear them from coast to coast. So the Buckinghams, the American Breed, the Crying Shames, the New Colony Six, bands like that got national exposure, yeah. uh, you know, thanks to WLS. Here's a funny story. My first radio gig was in Joplin, Missouri, and my roommate grew up in Chicago. You might know him as Major Tom. He did traffic reports up in uh, one of the rock stations in Chicago before he got out of the business. But uh that was his handle, Major Tom, and he's a traffic guy up there. Well, we used to get up in the morning because I worked overnights and he worked morning drive. And every once in a while, when he had to go in later because this or that, there was maintenance at the station, whatever, we would sit out in the car and we would turn on to see if we could catch. At night, we'd listen for John Records Landecker. And in the morning, we'd listen for uh, old Uncle Lair, you know, <laughs> Larry Lujak. <laughs> And it was such a such a kick. Here we are in Joplin, Missouri, and I'm working in radio, and this guy grew up listening to Super CFL and WLS and listen to Larry Lujak. And just, it was like a kid at Christmas, the way his eyes would light up when we actually grabbed the signal and we could sit and listen to him doing his, uh, trying to think what he did in the morning. It wasn't, what was some of the shows that Lujak used to do? Well, Lou, Lou Jack was was an interesting character in himself because he bounced through a lot of radio stations through his career, from yeah. Buffalo to Detroit to Chicago, had any number of shows on Chicago, then got fired, and then got brought back when another radio station, WFYR, went oldies only, so they brought Lou Jack back, and then he got fired again, and then he was back at WLS um uh toward the end of end of his career and he just um but he was always somebody that apparently and there's a lot of weird stories about lou jack that apparently always rubbed management the wrong way with some either sarcastic comment or did something that they weren't happy with and the next thing you know he was looking for a job again (laughs) 
I remember reading it in the book Super Jock, I think was his book, and uh, reading about him. And I think at the time, his big thing was he, he was at LS, but he wanted to work at CFL or the other way around. And there was just a constant battle going back and forth. And when Howard Stern came out and started telling his story, I thought, this story has been told, dude. Go to Chicago. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The other king, the other kingpin was Dick Biondi. You know, and oh, Dick I forgot about away. him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Dick's passed away recently, but uh, they've just uh, starting to put together a documentary on Dick Biondi. Yeah. And the people that are coming out to say, you know, how again the artists that are saying that. You know, it was beyond the, the that made us the stars that we are because of his being able to break their records on the radio. Right, right. Yeah, break the records, or or who was it? Wasn't was it was it Rick Dees that burned all the disco records up at? Uh... Well, we had the disco demolition with Steve Dahl at White Sox Park. That's right, Steve Dahl. Yeah, Steve Dahl. Where. Um, you know, where, where, yeah, he, he had this promotion at White Sox Park that for 99 cents and bring it, or it was 98 cents because it was sponsored by the Loop Radio, which was 98 FM, uh-huh. 98 cents and bring a disco album and uh, we're going to blow them up. Well, <laughs> you know, they put them all out in center field and when they went to blow them up, it started a fire and created all sorts of havoc and, uh, Actually, it was in the middle of a doubleheader. The second game got canceled. Because oh, my of goodness. <laughs> all the, the White Sox had a forfeit because of all the you know problems that it created. That's too funny. <laughs> now, do you, uh, do you follow any one media medium more than the other? Do you follow music more than radio, or do you follow advertising more than another? Do you follow books that are written about music more? What? What is Ken Boss's forte in musical archive? Well, it's music at this point in time because I'm just so absorbed in it and trying to do a story every day, um, you know, becomes becomes a challenge. You know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of bands that I haven't written about yet, uh, Styx, Survivor, um, bands like that, that their careers were so big that it's hard to condense down into a 1500 to 2500 word story without just feeling like it's another wikipedia thing you know yeah, yeah. Uh, that's that's the biggest difficulty but you know i i'd say once a week i get in a book about you know an, an artist from you know illinois or something about illinois um you know, recently uh, Aaron Cohen did the autobiography of Ramsey Lewis. Uh, then I got a, in a book called Play Like a Man, My Life in Poster Children, which was a Champaign, Illinois band, punk band, that uh, um, the bass player in the band basically wrote, wrote the book on it. And yet there was another book I got in just last week called Making the Low Notes by Bill Harrison. (laughs) Nobody would know who Bill Harrison is, but Bill Harrison was a guy that basically played in the pit bands and theaters and played in the jingle market, doing uh, um, uh, studio work and in commercial jingles and played in wedding bands and all the hotels and just tells the story of the life of a musician even though nobody knew, you know, he had no identity as a person. There are so many cool documentaries that are out like that on like Netflix, for example, 
what was the one Muscle Shoals about the uh, the Swampers? Great, great documentary. You know, and how these guys built a soul singer called Aretha Franklin from their talents. You know, and the stories like that they're just they're all over the place. You just got to find them, I guess, right? Well, yeah, you keep digging and you keep digging, you know, uh, um, and that's what all I do is is keep digging. And again, thanks to some of the Facebook posts, other stories emerge from that. Uh, you know, I, I'm trying to think of a good example of just a couple days ago, somebody sent me a story on a little band out of Streeter, Illinois, and all of a sudden in their story, uh, they started mentioning mentioning a guy named uh, George Tutko. And I'm going, well, I knew George when I was in school at Southern Illinois University, and he was in another band that had an album out. So now I got two stories there I have to write about. And then I started digging into George's history, and I didn't realize that he had gone out to Los Angeles and become a major studio engineer working with the likes of Rod Stewart. And, oh, wow. Uh, yeah. So, you know, the stories just continue to evolve as, as, uh, as I dig into them. One of my best friends in high school, uh, he used to play drums in the band that was set up in my, my girlfriend's basement. You know, I used to go over there and I, I didn't play at the time i'd sit and i'd sing a song or two but I, I didn't play with them anyway he ended up uh in high school taking a free job with kshe all right kshe radio kshe radio the rock giant of of the midwest you know and he took a job where he would go to the airport and pick up whatever guest kshe was bringing in in concert he'd pick up alice cooper you know he'd go and pick up uh Kevin Cronin from Mario Speedwagon, bring him to the studio for an interview before they did their show and so on and so forth. And he made a whole career out of that. From there, he got into radio, he got into promotions, got into Geffen Records, and then Geffen exploded at the time that he was in there, you know, and uh, it's a fascinating story. And this industry is just chock full of them. And I want to hear another one, but I got to do a commercial. <laughs> so I'm going to do, do a break here about a place in Tecumseh, Kansas, and then we're going to come back. And our guest is Kevin Voss of the Illinois Music Archives. We're going to talk a little bit more and get some fun stories again. But in the little town of Tecumseh, Kansas, you're going to find a place called Monkey House Guitars. Monkey House Guitars is a small made-to-order guitar shop. If you think it, they can build it. Some of the most beautiful and handmade guitars you'll ever see, meticulously designed and crafted for your specifications. Nothing is done by machine. Hand-laid frets, everything routed and sanded in the shop at Monkey House Guitars. The Multifirst guitar, for example, singularly one of the most innovative and interesting guitars I've ever seen being made. And you can watch it being made via photos on Facebook, all from the hands of Luthier Mike Thompson, amazing, amazing artisan. Now, as a side note, everybody knows that cancer sucks. Well, Mike Thompson of Monkey House recently has felt the touch of what this disease can do. To anyone who has had a friend or loved one go through the rigors and sorrows of cancer, you know what he's experiencing. When thinking about charities, when you're thinking about supporting somebody, doing a benefit concert, Mike Thompson of Monkey House Guitars and the Music of America podcast are asking you to please consider benefiting or doing a benefit or concert to help raise funds and awareness of the American Cancer Society. And please check out www.monkeyhouseguitars.com. That's Monkey House, one word, guitars. In Tecumseh, Kansas, if you can think it, they can build it. We're with Ken Voss in Chicago, Illinois, 
in the Illinois Music Archives. Ken, tell us one of the most uh, most fun, interesting, and I'm going to say elevator stories that you've uncovered or, un, I guess, discovered in your years of writing. Well, I think there's so many. I mean, I know you just did a uh, a nice commercial on that on a music store that manufactures guitars. There's there's so many even music instruments that have come out of Chicago. Uh, Hamer guitars, Lakeland guitars, Dean guitars, uh, Hammond organs. You know, yeah. uh, were founded founded here in in the Chicago area and in the Midwest. So just continuing to honor stories like that. Um, it's just a fun thing to do and to tell people about them. I'm thinking of the, the movie Rockstar with Mark Wahlberg, right? And that movie supposedly had a lot of interesting stories or, or funny, weird things that the band did. But it's an amalgamation of this is what Faces did. And this is something that The Who did. And this is something that Led Zeppelin did. And they put them all under the umbrella of the, the band that Mark Wahlberg was in. And that way they could tell the story that... This happened one time. They partied so hardy after a concert that took all the furniture and, and, and attached it to the ceiling, you know. <laughs> well, you know, again, you talk funny stories. And again, I go back to the bar scene, the club scene where the bands were trying to emerge in the 70s. And I love telling those stories because in the Chicago area, uh, I don't know how, how late bars are open in your market area. But in the Chicago area, we had a couple clubs. One was called the Night Gallery. Okay? The first band played from 9.30 to 12.30. The, the headliner played from 1.30 to 5.30 in the morning. Oh, my goodness. And they raised the cover charge at 2 o'clock in the morning because everybody else had a 2 a.m. liquor license and said, last call, head to the Night Gallery. You know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the bands made good money. But, you know, you're in that bar all night long with all the bands, and it was a black cinder block club, and the door faced due east. So now you're walking out of the club at 6 o'clock in the morning, you know, and being blinded by the sun rising. You know, so there were a lot of clubs like that in Chicago. Um, others were open till 5 a.m., and, and again, bands play until 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning. And it was the days where you would see a band like Cheap Trick for $2. Oh, you know? wow. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, and, and so those were fun times to talk about. Um, you know, back in the early days of the Illinois Entertainer, one, one point in time we wanted to do, a, people were asking us to do a letters to the editor column. And I said, I don't want to do a letters to the editor column. That just seems to be a waste of space. So somebody suggested there was there was a lady that was a great supporter of local music, and her name was Marion Nugent. And oh. <laughs> everybody called everybody called her Ma. So we ended up creating a column called Ma Nugent's Mail. Ma Nugent was Ted Nugent's mother. How and funny. She was a she was a great supporter. So it was great that people would write in and she would personally answer their, their letters and give them all this support as far as a, as far as a band goes. So things like that are fun. I grew up in St. Louis and then uh, moved away. was in radio for about 10 years, moved back to St. Louis, started a pest control company of all things. And one of my customers in the uh, uh, ground floor of their apartment building, they had some office spaces and there was a magazine 
they are called Showcase magazine. I think it was Show, Showcase or Showtime. And it's it's defunct now. It's gone. But it sounds like the same kind of paper that you you that you wrote for. That uh, they did local artists, local clubs. They interviewed uh, an occasional band that would come through if it was a touring band, but they still had to be touring like in the bi-state area. You know what I mean? Like they couldn't just be in town to play at the the pageant. They had to be playing at Muddy Waters. And they had to be playing at the pageant. You know, several days or playing pretty consistently in in the St. Louis metro area, St. Louis, East St. Louis kind kind of thing. Right. And it was just so cool because you get to find out like what these guys are going through, trying to make it, trying to be the next cheap trick, trying to be the next Elmore James, trying to be, you know, whomever, you know, and the way that paper came out, I thought this ought to be great all over the country. And apparently it was because you were doing the same thing in Chicago, right? So, I mean, there, there are many music publications throughout the country. You know, uh, there was one called Wham, Wisconsin Area Music up in Wisconsin. There was Buddy down in Dallas, Texas. There was um, a Night Rock News down in Indiana. Um, you know, again, music was so critical to us at that point in time. And, you know, uh, heading out to the bars in our college days was a thing to do. And and that was our source of music right where did you get your undergrad ken where did you go to did you go to school did you go to college or did you just go straight out of high school or what no i i went to college uh and i wanted to be in radio and once i when i graduated from college they were offering me to do farm reports in iowa and <laughs> i said i don't want to do farm reports in iowa and came back to chicago and uh had the idea of the music publication and um, I had started my own little calendar of who's playing around. And the calendar turned out to be a four-page, four 11 by 17 newsletter. Wow. And I, I, I took it to a couple record stores, and they said, this is cool. You know, can I get some more copies? And I said, yeah, give me 20 bucks, and I'll go to the print shop and get some more copies. And... Um, then a couple months later, I said, well, why don't you give me 40 bucks and I'll put an ad in it? <laughs> yeah, there you go. You know, and, you know, 10 years later, it was 96 page, four colored stitch and trim tabloid. Wow. Monthly, monthly tabloid. So, oh. you know, and like I said here, it's almost 50 years later, it's still in print. And that's the most amazing thing because so many of the others that still are trying to survive have gone digital only. I was going to ask about that, how digital has affected the printed word. It, it's killed it. And, you know, it's killing the newspaper industry. And, and uh, you know, that's just people don't want all that print material anymore. You know, they want they want immediacy. And yet they have to search for all that news. And I have people all the time come back and go like, where can I find an entertainment listing in the Chicago area? You know, I'm tired of scanning through trying to find this and that and the other thing. And, you know, I said, well, it's still in print, you know, yeah. Oh, yeah. you know, so, um, yeah, it's, you know, the, the digital industry all the way around. I mean, I write a lot about, you know, records back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, because it cost it cost a nickel to make a 45 record back at that at that point in time. So everybody and their brother was putting out a record, yeah. whether they had whether they had distribution, whether they were doing it to sell at their shows, whatever. 
Um, these days, you know, it's all, they want to be on Spotify and they want to be on, you know, Apple music. And I'm going, why do you want to do that? Um, a good friend of mine puts a bunch of stuff up on, on, uh, YouTube and Apple. And he just was touting that he got his 1 millionth view or listen. And I said, well, what's that equate to? He said, oh, about $600 in royalties. Yeah. You know, so, <laughs> You know, it's they're not making much money by going, you know, on the digital, but it's an outlet for the musicians. And some musicians are out there just playing because they love playing and they want people to hear their music and they don't care if they make any money on it. Yeah. The, the adage that I use all the time on the show is that the musicians don't get paid to play. They get paid to move equipment, you know, and <laughs> there's just there's a few that that get lucky You know, they get lucky. They get discovered. They get good. And they make a name for themselves, but there's just so much good talent that's out there that doesn't get any further than maybe Huntington, Alabama, you know, or Conway, Arkansas. They're just really good people and really talented singer songwriters. But if you don't have a vehicle to get their word out, how are you going to find out about them? You know, that's, that's one of the things we're trying to accomplish with the podcast here. And this is ironically a digital version of kind of what you were doing with the print, you know, except we're, we're not limited to a 50 mile radius. We're limited to 50 States in the country, you know? Well, it's, it's tough for the musicians these days because, you know, the club owners are not as supportive anymore. There used to be a circuit. I was talking to another gentleman this morning. I said, there used to be a circuit where you would have, you know, eight clubs that would be your house kind of club and you'd rotate there about, you know, once every eight to 10 weeks, you'd be back and you'd build your audience there. Mm -hmm. but, uh, um, but, but these days that's difficult to do. And, uh, you know, I was trying to help a band out uh, uh, about a year ago um, and we couldn't get a good tour routing. You know, we'd, we'd end up in the Quad Cities for a date. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and, you know, there was nothing between the Quad Cities and Chicago to pick up a second date to, to, to pay the gas money, you know. Um, so, you know, the circuits aren't there anymore. The, the, the club owners aren't, aren't partnering anymore. Why is uh, that, they're, you trying think? To, they're trying to run their own business. Why is that, you think? Business has gotten a lot tougher. Again, yeah. back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, nobody was worried about DUIs. Nobody was worried about liability insurance. Um, there, wasn't, there wasn't the amount of, uh, you know, fire insurance, liability insurance, building insurance that all the club owners had to concern themselves with like they do these days. Right. Um, so, you know, the costs have gone up, you know, exorbitantly for the club owners and the costs have gone up exorbitantly for uh, bands trying to travel. I mean, hotel expenses, gas right. expenses, you know, you can't go out for $400 like you used to. Um, one of the interesting stories of Chicago is back in the days of the teen clubs, you know, before the bars even hit. So back in the 60s, mm -hmm. the Who played a club called The Cellar in Chicago for, I think it was $400. Four, wow. days, la four days later, four days later, they were headlining the Monterey International Pop Festival. <laughs> you know, uh, 
<laughs> so, you know, again, you can't hire the who for $400. <laughs> no, you, you can't buy a string <laughs> for Townsend's guitar for $400, no. probably. You know, <laughs> that's hilarious. So I play in a, a little underage uh, 16 plus old teen bar. And days later, they're at Monterey. That's just amazing. I love that. Yep. We're with Ken Voss, Illinois Musical Archives, and we're going to talk with him a little bit more after I talk about a different festival or a different kind of thing. It's not Chicago. It's my old hometown. It's St. Louis. Growing up in St. Louis, the blues was a strong influence and has been all of my life. In fact, one of the logos we use for the Music of America podcast is a, a band called the Alabama Serenaders from way back in the 30s. Well, if you look at the picture closely in the middle there, there's this guy with a clarinet pointed straight up to the sky. That's my grandfather. Well, the St. Louis Blues Festival really showcases that deep-rooted blues heritage. It's called the B3 Blues Festival. It's a St. Louis outdoor concert festival that's held in historical Soulard Market every May. While the flavor is still local blues artists, the savory tradition of classic blues does and will prevail throughout the day. 2023 is come and gone. 2024 is already being planned. So keep your eyes and uh I guess keep your focus, your eyes focused on the Soulard B3, the annual blues festival in historic Soulard Market coming again in May of 2024. And before you know it, it's going to be May of 2024. Did you cover festivals, Ken, a lot? Did you cover like the big, I'm trying to, what, there was always a big uh, concert thing in Chicago, wasn't there? Like a, in the 70s, I'm thinking it was like a, like an eight band thing. Well, we had we had Summerfest, which was our summer music festivals for the city of Chicago. That was that was a seven to ten day festival. You had you had a couple of festivals at Soldier Field, uh, the Super Bowl of Rock festivals at Soldier Field, where they'd have, you know, uh, Leonard Skinner, Thirty Eight Special, Ted Nugent, Journey, you know, a uh, whole lineup of that nature. Yeah. Um, you know, so you had those kind of festivals. You had, you know, in the late 60s, you had the Kickapoo Rock Festival, which was down more toward your way. Kickapoo Creek, which was, uh, you know, one of those major, you know, uh, camp in the mud, <laughs> camp in the mud, <laughs> yeah. slop. Everybody drives in in their old VW vans and et cetera, et cetera. So you had those sorts of things, certainly. Did you, by any chance get a chance to interview David Hasselhoff, who's a Chicagoan. I, I did not, but yeah, David is from Chicago. We've actually done his story on the Illinois Music Archives page. Um, so, but he became actually bigger in Germany right. um, than he did here, than he'd ever did here in the United States, musically at least, you know, and he actually sang um, on top of the, the wall before the wall came tumbling down in, in Germany. That's right. That's right. I remember hearing about that. My, uh, my old bass player from my band grew up in Chicago and he, he went to high school with Hasselhoff and he always, John was, uh, he's an, uh, an actor in his own right, but he's never had the accomplished or the, the, the resume, I guess that Hasselhoff has, but they still talk to each other periodically. And, you know, John's, 
playing bass in a cover band in St. Louis and Hasselhoff is singing on top of the wall, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, another actor, Joe Mantagna from Criminal oh, yeah. Minds. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, he, was in a, he was in a band in his uh, high school days back here called the Apocryphals. You know, so and and he, he still has a lot of memories in that, and he still comes back and talks talks all the time. And of course, you got uh, uh, Gary Sinise, um, and and he's still out doing all the the things supporting supporting our veterans. Uh, so you have actors that, that have that have you know broken into the music industry also. And what about you? Did you play music? Did you ever do a band thing at all? Did you? Can I we... was a fail. I was a failed musician. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, I tried to, you know, I tried to play trumpet and piano back when I was a kid, and I just, you know, I couldn't cut it at all. And uh, for a while, I actually became a sound man. So I made the band sound good. You know, there you go. Um, and then again, the part of my post life after leaving the Illinois Entertainer magazine, uh, th then I went in to work for some sound companies, uh, manufacturers predominantly, um, and we would sell sound systems to clubs and you know performing arts centers and touring touring uh, production companies. Are you ever going to retire? What's retirement look like? Uh, it's, uh, you know, this, what I'm doing now is the Illinois Music Archives is really a hobby. I retired a couple of years ago, okay. right before COVID hit, fortunately. Um, uh, and, and so this is, this is a glorified hobby and something to keep me busy, you know, and, uh, I just enjoy doing it. And it's, you know, bringing back some old friends that I knew from years and years ago that, you know, we're discovering each other again and uh, um, uh, building some friendships back. That's pretty cool. I mean, yeah. you did it for so many years, you don't want to just walk away from it, you know. You well, it's, it's amazing. What amazes me the most is how many of the people are still out playing. You know, I'm going like, I knew you in the 70s and you're still playing gigs around here. And they say, yeah, we're just musicians. We just love doing it. You know, uh, we're not concerned about the money. You know, uh, the kids have grown up and moved away. And what do we do? Uh, actually, I went out to see one band one time and and uh, was a, a female lead guitarist. And I said, you know, you guys can't be making 50 bucks a person. Why are you doing this? And she said, because if I stop playing, my fingers are just going to lock up. Yeah, <laughs> you know, arthritis is going to set in yeah. and the fingers will just lock up. So I have to keep playing. <laughs> I totally get it. Now you've been doing this a long time. So you've seen the music industry change. What are two questions? What were some of the, like, what is the peak moment in your life when you thought music could never get any better? And then take that and compare it to where music is today. And if, see if it's better or worse and if, and maybe why. Well, you know, people ask me where music is today and, and I almost go, you know, I'm not in that mainstream anymore. You know, uh -huh. um, I, I watch the billboard awards and I watch the Grammy awards and I can't tell you who nine out of 10 of those musicians are. You know? Right. <laughs> so, I'm, so I'm still living in the past a little bit. You know, I think the peak for the music industry was probably in the in the 80s. 
um, when the record companies were just making boatloads of money and they would they would hire bands to give bands two album contracts and if they made it they made it and if they didn't they got dumped you know yeah um, so they gave those musicians so many chances to break out some of them did some of them didn't some didn't because the record the, the the record label didn't support them some didn't because they just were bad managers themselves you know right uh, uh, but I think that was basically the peak. And then once, you know, you got into the eighties and there was a lot of payola going on and there was a lot of, uh, money laundering going on that the record industry got hit real hard. Um, that I think that was pretty much the, 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 the beginning of the demise of the record industry per se. And what do you think is wrong with today's music? If, if that, if that's even a fair assessment, fair way of saying it, but it doesn't, to me, doesn't have the soul that music had back in the 70s, 80s, okay? It seems more manufactured, and uh, I, I, to my musician friends, I, I use the example of a tube amp versus a solid-state amp, you know? <laughs> and the music of the 70s and 80s was the tube amp era, and now everything is solid-state. It's all compressed and digitized, and it lacks the flavor, I think, but... That's me. What is your opinion? What do you think happened? No, I, I, I'm in agreement. And I use I use more of the example, you know, of analog versus digital. Yeah. You know, um, analog has a very smooth, uh, flowing uh, sound. Digital is square wave. Uh, digital is is boxes that you mm. piece together. Um, one thing I do is I'm very involved with a Jimi Hendrix uh, organization and collecting Jimi Hendrix. And people say, well, how, how do you like Hendrix these days? And I said, well, the problem is that we want every note that Jimi ever played. You know, we want that studio outtake. We want to yeah. hear the mistakes. We want to hear the good stuff. Not that I took a digital menu and I spliced it all together. And yeah, I made it sound good. And here's a new Hendrix release that, that does sound good because they've doctored it up. Um, but it's, it's not the real music. I heard just last week or maybe the week before that somebody had done, had found an audio track of John Lennon doing a phrase, a part of a song that's never been released. And from that, AI is going to build an entire song with John Lennon, John Lennon's voice by extracting him saying this word out of the song here, or however they do it. But AI is going to take that one single never released phrase and build an entire John Lennon, new John Lennon song out of it. What do you think about that? I think it's ludicrous. Uh, you know, we, we want what was real. We yeah. don't want, we don't want what was, you know, manufactured, you know, um, and again, we know AI is still evolving. So they're trying to do this in the early stages of AI where it's not perfected in any way, shape or form. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's uh, no, I, I'm not in favor. I want to hear the artist create the music. Amen. Amen. We're with Ken Voss. Illinois Music Archives, and we're going to have our closing segment here after I talk about this. Ken's an author, so I'm going to talk about a book. I was talking to a friend of mine about my brother's couple's workbook called Two Years After Forever. 
sort of a how-to guide to improve your communication skills, which, as anyone in any relationship knows, is crucial. So as we spoke later in the conversation, I mentioned the book again, Two Years After Forever. You know, that's the name of the book I told you my brother wrote. She stops me and says, oh, wait, that's your brother's book. I thought you meant you borrowed a book from your brother. Three little words, my brother's book. Two entirely different interpretations. In the book, Two Years After Forever, there are exercises that help you form better communicative skills to avoid pratfalls like that one. Along with your partner, learning and applying these exercises help you get back to why, two years ago, you pledged a life together, forever. Two Years After Forever, twoyearsafterforever.com, available at Amazon today and forever. Ken, typically in the Music of America podcast, this is the section of the show we call shameless self-promotion, but you're sort of retired, so there's really not a whole lot of promotion or things to promote, but you've got a really cool blog. You've got a really cool website, so maybe talk about those things if you've got books up and where we can buy or pick up those books. Yeah. Well, uh, the website is is the Illinois Music Archives, so it's simply IllinoisMusicArchives.com. And Facebook page is also just Illinois Music Archives. You can search that and you can find us very easily. Um, again, we have not yet published the book. Uh, I don't know whether it will ever really come to fruition. As I mentioned previously in this podcast, that uh, there are just so many stories to tell that it's just a, a never-ending uh, scenario of, uh, of building, building more and more stories. So we do that. Uh, here in Illinois, there is also in the process of an Illinois um, rock museum uh, in, under construction at this point in time. It's called the Illinois Rock and Roll Museum on Route 66 in Joliet. Uh, they are hoping to open sometime later this year. Uh, again, archiving Illinois music as a, as a whole. Um, there are some other museums that uh, there's a blues museum here in the Chicago area. Uh, there's an attempt on a gospel museum here in the Chicago area. There's even a polka museum here in Chicago. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Chicago was a king of polka music at one point in time, oh, you know, darn. because of the because of the immigrants' uh, influx into the city. Right. Well, I'll be darned. And what about you? Just uh, you're just going to ride off right off into the sunset at some point? Um, no, no, you know, not until my time has come, which you know, the Lord will tell me when that time is, there but I'll just, I'll just continue writing, enjoying, uh, helping bands out when possible. Uh, um, there was a, a band that came out with a lone single back in the late sixties called the cavemen and they reunited and they're back out playing again, a, a couple of gigs in the Chicago area. So I helped write their biography, uh, and, and put that together for them. So, yes. you know, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm doing a personal appearance on September 16th at a place called the two brothers roundhouse in Aurora, Illinois. Uh, it's called the rock expo and it's myself and, uh, John Lyons, who's the author of a Beatles book of Beatles in Chicago. Um, and uh, Jimmy Samaria, who wrote, who, who's a photographer, who's published his own book called Classic Rock. So we're all we're all going to show up and uh, do this, uh, help out this rock expo to um, 
uh, talk about music, talk about, uh, you know, my life with the Illinois Entertainer, the Illinois Music Archives, et cetera. That's, that's going to be fun. Ken, thank you so much. Thanks for coming on the show, too, okay? Thanks for having me. All right, man. It was Ken Voss, the Illinois Music Archives. And up next on the Music of America podcast, we're going to Charleston, Illinois, and visit with the Seth Brown Duo. You've been listening to the Music of America podcast. If you like today's show, please go to the website at www.musicofamericapod.com or our Music of America podcast Facebook page. Like us and follow the show and episodes. We tally the votes of all our shows, and the most listened to shows will be rebroadcast on our best of shows at the end of the season. I look forward to having you with us again and listening to the Music of America. Thank you.